This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by Dominican University Performing Arts Center, presenting Pat Hazel's permanent record on Friday, April 12th in River Forest, Illinois at Lund Auditorium. Reserve your tickets at dom.universitytickets.com. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an award-winning storyteller, an exceptional actor and comedian who knows how to spin a yarn. He has presented five separate solo shows and has been recognized by NPR Snap Judgment with Performance of the Year. He shares the importance of truth in his stories. He explains how he writes on the move in his car, and he recalls a moment that he faced a shotgun on a front porch during a sales pitch. Everyone has a story to tell. They just don't tell it quite like Don. Coming up, Don Reed tells it like it is by sticking to his stories. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. That was a grand intro. I feel like I'm somewhere special. Yes. If I could have had bugles, I would have added them. (laughs) (laughs) You are so many things. And I feel like the storyteller to me is the highest level because I know a lot of comedians and I know a lot of writers, but the toolkit that you have to have when you begin to integrate drama and you get to integrate sound effects and impressions and all of that, what you do is really extraordinary. And I guess I would like you to start by telling us a little bit about what are all the things you pull from when you begin to outline a new routine or story you're going to tell? I draw from my life. And oddly enough, I was in the entertainment business for maybe 25 years before I ever did it. I was afraid to tell stories because my stories, autobiographical, were things I wasn't necessarily proud of or were so wildly embarrassing that I'm like, why, why would I do that? And for that reason, I think my stand-up, when I first joined stand-up, it was all only impersonations and sound effects. That is, nothing about the truth. I never wanted to tell anybody that my stepfather forced us to be in that religion that rhymes with Tehovah Sitnesses. Hmm, I wonder which one that is. <laughs> which one is that, right? Uh, I never want to tell anybody that, or that I ran away to go live with my real father, who was a pimp. And it's a true story, but I had already come up on the clean, exacting stand-up style that got me all the colleges and all that stuff. And so at the start, there was no storytelling in my stand-up at all. And so the framework I work from now is mostly an editing job. There's so much to talk about, so many stories to go over, and it's about what am I leaving out? One of the things that you've identified is that the truth is a very deep well of material. And trusting yourself to go to that well, that's where the fear before that almost was a firewall. When you talk about impressions and you talk about humor and you talk about being the clean cut comic, all of those things were a mask to be accepted and approved of, maybe for a bit of the fear of exposure was going to ruin that. And you flipped that, you got on the inside of the vulnerability and discovered just a bounty of gold. Yeah, I literally was working at NBC. I got deeply into voiceover, doing voices for different animated shows and network promos. 
and I became an ad executive at NBC through a unique set of circumstances. I said, hey, you want to try this? You want to try this? And it was fun. They still let me go do my stand-up and all my work. And I was working with a guy who had written an episode of Roseanne. That was his claim to fame, and he mentioned it daily. <laughs> but it was, it was a really cool guy. I really liked him a lot. And if he, when he listens to this, he'll crack up. He said, I'm working on a one-person show. So what's about? He says about my Jewish parents always on my back about why don't I, you know, get back into law or you know some kind of you know respectable career. I said, okay, okay, cool. He said, hey, so where'd you grow up? I said, I grew up in Oakland in the '70s. Stepfather Jehovah's Witness, real father pimp. He said, you need to do a one man show about that. And so I wrote it literally in 2000, and then was afraid to do it and didn't do it until 2006. So it's all this window of time is still fighting that because there was a lot of vulnerability there. And there's so much power in vulnerability, but you got to dive in there to get to it. I've been snooping around on you. I've been watching your sets on Snap Judgment. And I would recommend anybody just watch you do those stories. But you did say, find the scariest thing and go after it. Go Three feet past the finish line was something you said. And I don't know what, who you were speaking to, but will you tell them a little bit about what the, you meant by that to go three feet past the finish line? Yeah, my father, when I was like 16, after I moved from the strict knocking on doors, $100 a month, dealing with dogs and people slamming their doors in my face. When I moved in with my father, I thought over there was going to be just a complete party. Like, wow, because there were ladies around and drinking and all this stuff. I'm like, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. But he's like, no, no, you're not, you're not doing all that. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought there was players and hustlers and street life and cars going by. And well, he's like, no, you're, you're not going to do that. That's not what's happening over here. You got to go this other way. And so there was a lot of pressure around being yourself, you know, and finding yourself when I moved over there. And I didn't know my dad was going to be who he was. Let's talk about your dad, though, in general. Once you moved to his house, how did that change your trajectory? I knew I was free from a lot of the mental control and physical control of my stepfather. I know that at the moment I did call my father and said, can I move in with you, that my life changed forever. I knew it changed forever. And so my father was a shining example of be your mother and self. That was his whole thing. <laughs> just so everybody knows, you did your own beep. I just <laughs> I want them to know we're not censoring you, but because you're so good at sound effects. And now I'm afraid you might be censoring me as we go, but you, you enjoy. Go ahead. <laughs> and so as a result, my brother, who at the time was gay, and a time of the window of the 70s, 80s, where if you're a player, a hustler, you know, with a Cadillac in your hat tipped to the side, you're not doing what's called accepting sissy stuff. But my father wasn't about that at all. He allowed my brother, who transitioned to become my bold, beautiful sister, to move in and be herself. And so in front of life and everyone, he was like, be yourself. And he knew that when I was trying to hit the party streets, that that wasn't really me. I really did enjoy reading E.E. E. Cummings and Langston Hughes and speaking in college. That's what I really wanted to do rather than having some Mad Dog 2020 and some Hennessy. So while he wasn't a shining example of how to be the way he was, 
he was mindful of allowing you to take the path that would allow you to be yourself. Yeah, he insisted upon it. If you weren't that, then that's when you were in trouble. See, I think that's a really powerful thing for the listener to focus in on because oftentimes it's the exact opposite. Helicopter parenting is about molding the child into what the parent thinks they ought to do. And then there's an internal struggle always like, but I don't want to be in athletics or I don't want to be in marching band, right? But you still have to please the parents that live in their house. So I think the listener can go hear the story that you just had mentioned that you did on Snap Judgment. It's called I Miss Tony. And it is extraordinary. It is powerful, emotional journey. And I'm new to you as a storyteller. I remember, I'm going to throw you back to HBO in 2009. I remember you had a hilarious routine about Kung Fu theater dubbing and the sound effects and whatever. And so I really did just know that sort of veneer, right? That surface hilarious guy who is presented just on the exterior. And then all these years later, because of a mutual friend, Dave Nihill, who's an Irish comic, he said, you got to get Don Reed on this show. I was like, oh, cool. What's Don Reed up to? And then I just went into the deep end of the pool. And the very first story I saw was I Miss Tony. And I, I got to tell you, as a writer, I looked at you as an actor and said, I want to write for a guy like this because you're using rhythm. You're using music. You're using emotion. You're not afraid to go for the pathos or the reality. And that I think most comics are terrified. They're terrified to reveal anything. And the very thing that you were afraid of for yourself, you probably carried some stigma for your brother, sister will say at the moment till they hear the story. And that is, you know, that's baggage. It's all baggage. The hardest thing, I think comics find, and I, and it was actually easy. I recently co-produced Robert Townsend's One Man Show. And it was easy for him because he's a, uh, an actor as well as a stand-up. And they're different, completely different worlds. Is the shifting gears from being funny to being super dramatic can be okay. But it's being funny to being super dramatic and back to funny. That's the part that's the gears go if you don't do it right. Yeah, that, that part can be... Uh, uh, super tricky. And using that humor, when you return to humor, I find it, when you talk about shifting gears, that allows the audience just enough relief to go a little further up the mountain. You know, it's sort of like, hey, we can stop here. We can all laugh a little, cry a little. But if you can get them to start laughing at the hard parts, the serious part, and realize you put them in the driver's seat. Yeah, I think I found that almost anything horrible that happened to you, you can make funny. Just about just about everything. I'm sure there's a few things off limits, but I found like some of the lowest moments in my life uh, I could make really funny. One time my stepfather was pressurizing me and told me after a spanking, if you're a man, stand up and box me. But if you're an animal, crawl to your room. And that was probably one of the lowest moments in my entire life that he said that. But sometimes when I do it in a storytelling setting in my one person shows, I lay down that moment, that dramatic beat when he said that if your man stand up and box me for an animal, crawl to your room. And I go, mm, I think I'm going to crawl to my room, which is the release side. And then there's 
another route you can go. But it's like, I think I'm good. Let, let me weigh this. Uh, yeah, then I think I'm going to do the crawling thing because I don't want any more of this. But there's a lot of stuff that can happen that if you delve in and turn it inside out. Well, as we know, all comedy comes from a lot of drama. So you can take those rough moments. And I highly suggest anybody who's a comedian, at least go do a storytelling night where you tell some truth because it'll inform your stand-up incredibly. Yeah, that is a great piece of advice. And I would say the same if you're not a comic, if you're a speaker, you know, if you're a motivational speaker, if you're a writer, writing is also a little bit of a protective valve, which is you hide behind your computer. But if you go and tell that story, even after having written it, if you go up, you put yourself into the fire. You put yourself into the fire of being able to communicate it to an audience. And you learn so much every time you tell a story, whether or not you're appropriately telling it or adding the right drama or creating that heightened moment of surprise. Like you generally, with truth, you generally don't have to inflate. You just have to be less afraid. Right. There was a time when I was trying to be something I wasn't. My father was trying to direct me to be myself. But there was a window when I was trying to be cool like my older brother. My brother had a perm and platforms and all the ladies like, yeah, hey, oh, were after him. And I really was you know, enamored by that. And one day we were supposed to go down to Lake Merritt to roller skate and meet all these girls. And I was excited about it. But I was tickish. I was blinking and nervous. And... We couldn't find any hair care products to do our hairstyles. So we're called the, it's called the Lord Jesus cut. And I couldn't find any hair care products. So I used some butter. You can go online and look it up. But it was searching so deeply and revealing that moment because the moment was bad. It was not good. But when you commit to telling the truth about putting butter in your hair to impress girls so, so it can look slick. And it looks like a disaster when it freezes on the bus, but that's another story. <laughs> well, it's a great story. And that one is called Butter. Yes. And you set the location so well, the setting. There's so much engagement and laughter in that. And part of it is they are inside your skin thinking about something they did. And just the notion of that going that far to sort of be approved of and feel hip and cool is something that people can relate to. So I find in storytelling a transferable piece of information that will save their life. <laughs> exactly. You know something? It's very interesting that when one tells their tale, no matter what background you're from, African-American, Asian, person with a disability, transgender, doesn't matter. If you tell them from a true perspective, people get to gather your experience from a universal tone. Uh, what I'm saying is this show is about me, a young black boy growing up in Oakland in the 70s. But anybody who came to the show was in the same seat I was, not knowing anything about where I was headed. And that allows people to not just be in your shoes, but in your story. Oh, that's a great way to phrase it. And I think Maya Angelou said that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story that's inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what that show you did, that first one man show was called 14th Street. Yeah, East 14th, yes. Oh, East 14th Street, right. How did you feel 
not going into it, which I'm sure you did with trepidation. You talked about those six years of holding on to that. But as you began to do this show night after night and you got to the other side of it and people began to embrace that, tell me what that felt like. That was uncontrollable tear joy. It was a major release like from not new me, but real me was out now. And from the first night I did it, I knew I was home. From the very first night, I, I, I was on my knees crying in the dressing room and my ex-wife was rubbing my back. She's like, you okay? You good? I said, I'm absolutely beautiful. It was just such, Pat, was such a release. And then every night being able to do that, then I couldn't wait to do it. Yeah, it, exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely overjoyed. And then getting the right responses and then getting to off-Broadway so fast. I'm like, I knew I was in the right spot. Then coming back to the Bay Area, I was kind of afraid. This thing about, that's one thing about telling true stories. There's real people in it and you got to have some conversations with them before. <laughs> right. I guess I, we, this is where we put the warning in. Yes. Yes. Do tell these stories you're fearful of, but warn the people who maybe reflected not so well. <laughs> there was a point where my father was taking me over his girlfriend's houses in the daytime. And then he made the lying and the betrayal fun. He's like, check this out, baby. You make up the lie today. Where were we? I'm like, okay, we went down to the park and we had some sandwiches. He said, that's a good one. Tell her that. My mother figured it out, you know, at some point. But for a long time, I was telling, you know, come in and tell her the lie of where we were that day and not at his girlfriend's house. And then so I, I called her. I said, hey, mommy, I need to talk to you about something. <sighs> in the show, I'm doing a show. She said about what I said about everything. She said, well, about everything? I said, yeah. She's like, so what are you going to say? I'm going to do the show. I'm going to do a one-man show about, well, actually, I've been doing it. I've been afraid to do it in Oakland at home. She's like, okay. I said, so here it is. She's like, probably something about you, uh, your father taking over his girlfriend's house just while I was at work. Here's some more stuff for your show. And she had it as opposed to <laughs> the other route. So sometimes it can go that way, too. Did you remember when she first saw the show? Did she come and experience it? Yes. Yes, she did. She saw it before she passed. She saw it probably 10, 15 times. She's bringing her girlfriends to the show. She's like, oh, girl, you got to see this. Uh, this is quite a ride. So, yeah, that was uh, very empowering to go to the side of truth and then have it accepted. I've only had one family member push back out of everyone. You don't have to name the family member, but can you give me a sense of, did that scar that relationship for a long time? No, uh, actually, oddly enough, it, it was scarred for quite a while. And then we both got COVID at the same time and it brought us together. <laughs> oh, no. Nothing bonds people like a little bit of a COVID scare. <laughs> a little COVID, right? No, I, I, exactly. I, I will say this. The pandemic in general has made me reevaluate how I spend my time. What are my priorities? What do I want to work on? These conversations, including this one we're having, became a much more powerful priority to me because I thought, you know, I, I have a little bit of privilege that I can network with people that are writers and actors and directors and filmmakers and all things that there was nobody for me to look at when I was a teenager. And a phone call between me and any of these professional folks is a inspiration and a guiding light for someone in the middle of the country who doesn't know it's possible. And it costs nothing. I mean, with the internet for distribution, they can come with us on this ride. 
And I really felt like that was a really important thing to leave in a legacy package was why don't I give mentors to people that I feel like I have access to? Outstanding. And I've heard some really, really good stuff. I got to tell you something, though. Uh, this is a, 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 a tan- I won't say a slight tangent. This is a full tangent. I have uh, two sons. They're now 26 and 23 years old. When they were kids, and the wife's like, they don't, they don't need army men. They don't need any army men. I said, no, but army men is fun. It's going to be fun. I said, they're not really going to have more. You know, I'm not going to buy them any guns or anything, so let's just do it with these. Every time I got on my hands and knees and, like, turned the gun to shoot around the corner or the crawling guy, I had your, your face in my head while I was on my knees with my sons. Because you're referencing back to when my very first Tonight Show appearance – I did impressions of all the little green army men. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I basically stood in the different shapes. Like this is grenade guy and this is Jeep driver guy. And it was a very, very silly routine, but it was what I did as a kid and what I remembered as a kid. That is fairly universal too. My dad, so much older than me, remembered having lead army men where they poured them into a mold, but it was the same active part of playing, which I think is really at the centerpiece of my attitude about things, is the sense of wonder that I reflect in the Wonder Bread years, the sense of brotherly competition and other plays that I wrote. I always try to find, and I don't wouldn't call it a theme, but I try to find a sort of a universal truth to hang my story on. And it isn't always the deepest, darkest secret, but it's some kind of emotion that I feel like I can take a ride on for a long period of time. Exactly. Something uh, kind of interesting for me is your your time, this is flipping to you, writing for uh, Seinfeld and how long that show went. Because I was on a college tour and part of it was I was to meet in Alaska at a, at a college in Alaska and they wanted two headliners and it was me and Carol Leifer. And I was waiting in a van at the airport and Carol Leifer got in the van so we start talking about what's going on. I'm like, oh, I'm I'm going to like, you know, 19 colleges after this. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, what have you been doing? She said, I just left, you know, bouncing things around with Seinfeld about, it's, it's called the Seinfeld Chronicles and we shot the pilot. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with it. <laughs> wow. That, that is, that, the initial name of the show was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. Karen Leifer went on to work on the show over many, many years as a contributing writer. But I think the reason they took the word Chronicles off was that there was a show at the time called The Martian Chronicles that had just bombed. And and somehow NBC's wisdom was, oh, maybe the word Chronicles is part of the problem. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a problem. But also, they didn't know what they had in the beginning either. I mean, they moved that thing around. When Seinfeld first came on, it was under late night and specials and it wasn't on the same night of the week so it really really found its sea legs when cheers was on the way out and they put it on thursday after cheers is when really everybody came to town for it but all along they knew what they were doing they were entertaining themselves jerry and larry david had sort of decided we're going to make ourselves the audience and if they don't like it you know, they can they can find another way to go, but this is what we're going to do. And I mean, it was fun to be in the sidecar of their success and to watch all of that happening. One of the things that you and I have in common is that in addition to being a writer on that show, I drew the short straw 
and became the studio audience warm-up guy on episode one. Yeah, not the pilot, but on the very first episode, we thought, oh, any one of us could do this. I didn't really realize how much work warm-up was and how thankless it is in a way. I mean, if you're good and energetic and enthusiastic, you can survive, (laughs) but nobody's there to see you. It's like you're in the way of the show, and you did this for so many years on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and it's fun in theory. Okay, there's a big, big, massive difference in doing The Tonight Show and doing Blossom, okay? A huge difference. The half-hour world is three and a half mostly treacherous hours of the audience there not to see you at all, to see the star. And so at a certain point, even like I say about maybe two and a half hours in, they wouldn't have even seen the best comic in the world do two and a half hours. So comedy is starting to leave the building. And so at a certain point, I would turn on the show. I would turn on the show and make fun of how long it was taking. And that helped a lot. I would get sometimes if there wasn't a star, they would bust in groups of uh, halfway houses and high schools. Girls like, oh, you ain't funny. Get off the, why are you, why are you trying to make faces and talk to us? Just be quiet. It'd be like a prison work release bus and, and they would get some credit, like time off their prison time if they went to the sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know if you know it, but the halfway houses couldn't have any money. I, I did some trick where I was giving a guy a dollar. He said, he can't have a dollar. He might buy some drugs with it. You got to take that dollar back. I'm like, oh goodness. I didn't know. Things were that tight. So one time I did a, a warm-up that was seven and a half hours long because halfway through, they went in the back. They didn't tell me till after. They went in the back and rewrote the pilot. <laughs> right. And you're, and you're filling that time. They went in the back room, tap dancing. I don't tap dance. Juggling, doing sounds I don't even know how to do. Just trying to keep things going. They brought some ice cream sandwiches in and they were melted. The pizza was cold. They're like, we hate you. <laughs> I'm like, it's not my fault. Yeah, they do hate you. And here's what you have to do. Somehow, what I used to do is in my head, I had to, well, number one, learn not to hate myself during it. <laughs> <laughs> because you go, what am I even doing here? It's like you're in a bunker with everybody, and suddenly you're meant to be the head of the Jungle Cruise tour and, and turn this absolute vast nothingness into the most exciting day to keep them from leaving Universal Studios. Exactly. But after take three of the same scene, and they already know the punchlines of the jokes, I got to the point where I would say, like I had been rehearsing a few good men that I was supposed to do a drama back in Omaha. And I had the script in my satchel. And so I literally handed it to an old guy and I had him play the Jack Nicholson role. Are you serious? Yeah. I did my dramatic monologue and I had an old guy read the Jack Nicholson, which they laughed at it because he just was sort of frail and and not strong. But I came with my mail in my pocket some nights and I would say, we're going to open my mail. (laughs) I mean, I was just trying to get stuff done. We're grocery shopping tomorrow. What should I get? And the audience would go, what kind of game is this? I go, no, I really need your help. I want actual insight. Now, the crazy thing is the Tonight Show, though, I come, like I said, come from three and a half hours, half hour comedy. I go to the talk show format and they had that well-oiled machine down to a laser point. 
I would come in. Actually, Jay went out before me each night, which was kind of like a very egoless move to make. He'd walk out, say, hey, how's everybody doing? Hey, Don, rip it up. And I'd go out there. And I, on the norm, I did every day five to seven minutes. That's it. Nice handoff. Yeah. Five to seven minutes. A couple of times, camera breakdowns, and I'd do 20 or 30 to fill. But I had three hours worth of whatever you need ready to go. At the same time, that whole process pushed my storytelling and one-man shows because I ended up having five altogether. But while I was at the Tonight Show, I couldn't go very far. I didn't want to get trapped too far away in Chicago, headlining some spot or whatever. So I only went to the Bay Area on Saturdays and Sundays. As a result, I was going to the same audience. So I was forced to create another one-person show and another one and another one. And it actually impacted my output. That's interesting. And did you do The Tonight Show as a stand-up as well? Let me try to tell this as best I can. Back when Johnny Carson had two months left on The Tonight Show, he called Robert Townsend. And Robert Townsend called me at home and said, guess who just called me at home, saw our HBO special, Johnny wants you on The Tonight Show before he leaves. I was like, are you serious? He's like, yes, yes, have your manager call. I called my manager. She's calling and calling. She said, I'm having trouble getting through. She calls me. She said, as far as I can get is to a gatekeeper, and he wants to see you do two or three minutes. He said, no, no, I didn't curse. He told Robert that if I did the same set, six minutes that I did on HBO, boom, I'm ready to go. Uh, so she calls her more. She's like, Don, I'm having trouble. I can't get through. And so Carson does his swan song boom says goodbye and i don't do the show i see robert townsend he's like hey i don't get to watch all the time what was it like doing the tonight show i said i didn't do it man i didn't get to he said what the fuck happened what do you think i said i don't know about maybe three months later i get a call from my manager's office and for lack of a better explanation it was a gopher he would book our flights do stuff like that get coffee around the office and he called me he said don I need to tell you something. She never called Johnny's office. I was like, what? She said, she never called Johnny's office. I'm here. I know everything that's going on. <clears throat> Don, she also sat us down and she said, we don't care if Don gets a movie or a TV show or anything. Long as Don is booked on the road, the lights are on, the lease is paid, and we don't have to worry about any of that. There's another guy I want on, and that's what I'm pushing for. He said, Don, you got to go. And so I left, kept going, kept going, pushing through. And then I was sitting in a BMW dealership looking at a car I couldn't afford, but he got to look to be motivated, right? So I'm standing there looking at this car. And I get a call in the some producer from the Tonight Show calls and says, hey, Don, the warm-up gig opened at the Tonight Show. It's a sweet job. It's little time. It's great money. You get your own dressing room. You meet anybody you want to meet. Are you interested? People are pushing for this job. I said, I'm going to go out for it. So he said, I can't give it to you, but I can get you down to the last three people. Got me down to the last three. Somebody went the first day. I went the second day. He said, we don't care who else is coming tomorrow, who was here yesterday. It's yours. Great money. Had the job for five years, over a thousand episodes. But the thing is, Pat, the person that called me when I was at that dealership was that little gopher. 20 years later, had become a producer at The Tonight Show and said, Don, you deserve this. And that was Bob Reed. Bob Reed called me and got me 
that gig. And so I was on the show as an actor four times, but I didn't do stand-up. And I wasn't really pushing to do stand-up either. People are like, get on there, do stand-up, get out to stand-up. I was being really absorbed and submerged in this solo storytelling world. And that was where my magic lied. And I didn't realize so after I left the show, because I never did any stories in my stand-up, not one, not ever. It was all fake movie trailers and impersonations and things like that. And then after The Tonight Show, my run there was done. When I once started visiting stand-up again, and I started using the stories that I didn't use in my one-person shows, it informed my stand-up incredibly. Now I'm doing all that stuff and stories too. And now 20 minutes, a half an hour goes by in a snap. Right. Since you just did the snap, I'm going to transition to snap judgment. I want you to explain to the audience what snap judgment is for NPR in case they haven't listened or know what it is and how that advanced. Were you first approached by them or you went to them? They asked me for, no kidding, three years to do the show. And I didn't know what it was. I was like, eh, what, what are you guys doing over there? Eh, the podcast, what's the podcast? And the founder, exec producer, the master storyteller, Glenn, kept saying, Don, we want you to do some stories on the show. I was like, eh, no, it doesn't fit. I want to do my whole 90 minutes with a break in the middle. He's like, no, but I'm sure we can truncate and lift the stories out and wrap them around. So the first time I did the show was this big shoot in San Francisco, 3,000 people, nine cameras. It's an ear, it's an audio show, but they do these specials that they shoot. And so we did it in San Francisco. I fell in love with it. And then they started doing these tours. And the tour is the live audience comes and watches people tell stories with a live band soundtracking your storytelling. And not in like a little way, but a soundtrack of So I was walking down the street, like nuanced music, like a movie. So every seven minute to 15 minute story, it's like a movie soundtracked by this live band, drum, percussion, piano, band and it it really elevates the storytelling to an area that it can't really put into words. That's what I saw in the clips that I saw where those beds of music sometimes were led by you beginning to you obviously communicate with the music director and those folks where you can open it a little bit and then the stride you have on stage just it all becomes funny. What it does is it develops the character, it advances the setting. I would say that that form of storytelling is the closest thing we have to time travel. Because you're transporting people to that place. You're taking them to that street corner or to that beach or park. Wow. Yeah, that's that's deep. <laughs> and when it works, when your vocal tone, when the lighting, when the soundtrack, when it all begins, they're with you. They are in that place. And so I think that's the finesse of it is trying to be sure that you're using all that theater and all that drama that can't come off the page in the writing and it can't just be the words. The music drives the emotion sometimes. And I noticed that it then informs your facial expressions, right? Your eyebrows are dancing, you know, like you've got something going on there. And you seem to know 
And I think it's kind of like somebody who's a master chef or somebody who's a, a baker or something where you just know all the ingredients and exactly which ones to use. Yeah, and it's been through trial and error, uh, but also finding where I was supposed to be. That had a lot to do with it. Whereas a lot of times in my stand-up, people are like, you sure are doing a lot. Uh, can't you just stand there and tell a joke? This ability to move my body and my face and change voice and character and be the dog that ran into the room or the bird that flew past fits that. And as a result, interestingly enough, no one heard a single pitch of mine when I was doing stand-up. Like I would do my stand-up and it wasn't even about what I was trying to pitch. People were like, I, I don't see, what do, what do we do with you? What do we do with you, Don? As a result of these, I've actually devised most of my stories and my shows to come across like a feature film. Like when you come to my show, it's three act feel of the ebb and flow of a movie so that people can go, oh, that's kind of a movie or I could see how that could be a TV show. So as a result, I've had the most success developing content for film and television as a result of that work. It's allows people to see kind of almost in real time when you do an hour and a half or hour 15, what that movie, what that TV show would look like. Right. And how strong of a central character you would be, because then they can begin to imagine, well, what if we put him in a different situation? What if he were in this scenario, right? So what you do, which is why oftentimes stand-ups are thrust into television movie, is that your character that you develop as a storyteller and as a stand-up becomes the thing they build the show around. Because it's something that in a lifetime, a person is really becoming the character that's being developed. Now, you did have that opportunity with, with a project called Bartlett. I saw a little bit that some of that stuff is available online. I thought maybe there were six episodes or something out there. But how much fun was that for you when you suddenly realized, oh, I can now work in this? Were you a part of the creation of that show or were you just cast in that show? I was cast in that show, but I helped create my character. And it was born of them seeing me tell stories on Snap Judgment. It, it was directly related to, we saw I Miss Tony, uh, we think you're very good, and join in the cast in that fashion. Now, through a unique set of circumstances, Lynn manuel Miranda, who was on fire on Broadway in Hamilton at the time, had done his last show and took his last bow on Broadway and came right to our set and co-financed and had a recurring role on the show. And that that emboldened me to go like, you know, this the theater lining in with television and film. When you look back at some of the best people ever, Sidney Poitier or whoever you want to mention, they had that time performing live on the board. I always refer to it as the boards too. So I love hearing that you say that term because when I'm on the road, I feel something come from the boards, right? Because I'll be in an old jewel box theater in the middle of Wisconsin and they'll say, oh, you know, Will Rogers played here. And I'm like, I get a sense that his rope has skipped on this right across this area. Right, right. Whether you're a dancer or you're a actor, it is the magical place that we go. People who need to ski have to live near the mountains. People who have, like our Aquarius have to be near the ocean. But I think when you have theater in your blood, the boards become a part of our lifeline of how to express ourselves. Yeah, big, big time. But it's interesting how many people say that theaters are haunted. 
Did you know that? And that's why they keep that, that light on. No, I have heard that. The ghost light. I, I'm a big fan of it. But I don't think it's haunted. I think that they are archangels that are there to be sure these stories continue to be told. I like that better. I like that better. I'm going to adopt that in this moment. That sounds much better than what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, it would be different if somebody hung themselves from the rafters to make a point. (laughs) No, but I'm saying, (laughs) I think that even stagehands, their spirit of everything they put into theater is exactly what the audience gets in that moment of community, which we have not been experiencing so much during the pandemic. What they don't realize they are missing is the community breathing in and breathing out together, laughing together, crying together, feeling something, because theater is quite a bit different than reading a story. Drama is taking something and bringing it to life. And then I think that where the real magic happens and you see it as an audience member and you use it as a storyteller is how do I connect the humanity, the human condition to this? So they can feel your heart. That's what's happening in your story. You're not telling them a story that they're going to go tell somebody else. They're going to be at a point where they cannot tell that story, but they can feel the emotions of it. And they're going to say, you got to go see this guy. It's the most unbelievable thing. I can't even tell you what he did, but I felt something. You're saying something, the hard part. During the time of the pandemic, I discovered and it's going to sound self-explanatory, but that stories create empathy. That link, and I've actually, I had a one-man show I did called The DMV, where I played nine characters waiting in line in the Department of Motor Vehicles. But they're all actually based on people I really knew. And the show did really, really well. And actually, I developed it with the executive producers of Bartlett into a half-hour series. And we'll, we'll see what happens with it. We're still working with it. but. I took some of those same folks after the George Floyd tragedy went down. A CEO asked me to help him write a message to his employees globally. And I helped him because I had some time in corporate America via the network NBC levels. I helped him shape that message. But I asked him because he's having some troubles with one of his middle level employees, a black woman. And I said, have you asked her her story? He was like, you you mean, I said, not her resume. Have you asked her her story? When he did, it completely shifted their dynamic. As a result, I've been involved in uh, presenting a presentation. That's what the diversity zone is. It's like a mock twilight zone type of thing where there's some humor in it, but I do an imaginary equity diversity meeting. And each of the people take turns speaking, but they're all people I really know. But it's born of that work. But all being under the message when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion. It's not enough to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You have to put yourself inside their story. I like that a lot. I think I'd like it repeated because I think being inside of other people's stories really makes you feel something. And it really makes you think about so much more than to hear a lesson. Right. Or to do a diversity training little check off the boxes. Uh, Linda's black, check off the box, say hello in the morning. At the end of the day, say goodbye because Linda's black, check off the box. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, that's, I understand. Exactly that machine. Like, did you watch the video of how to be nice 
to the guy who is sight impaired. No, bring some humanity to it, bring story to it. And then people can actually hear it and care or even give a boot at all, you know? Yeah. I think story is powerful, but also I always think about talking to people in the same language. And by that, I don't necessarily mean somebody speaking Greek and somebody speaking Spanish. But if I am not listening to you, if I am not hearing what your learned experience is, I may not know the language of your life. And I do think that when somebody can't speak the same language, it requires you to kneel down and to hold their hand or to give a hug. There are other languages that we have to come together on. And sometimes it's not just that visual language of passing by and saying, oh, that guy's homeless. You know what I mean? It's not even just about stereotype. It's about an unwillingness to be open to it. It's inconvenient. It's not easy for people. I'm speaking more to myself. I'm not being professorial as if I have the answer. I'm saying everything that I've learned along the way, it's a willingness to be uncomfortable, a willingness to have patience to learn or to listen or to take off my solutions hat and try to sit in that chair, whether it's a chair of something that was shamefully provided by ancestors past You know, it's all a part of back to what we were talking about, the story. The story doesn't end because you change locations. The story isn't like, and then they all moved to the beach and we all forgot about the past. That's not a good story. Right. (laughs) Not the answer. It's interesting how much humor has to do with people hearing what you're saying. So that's the the little gift box that we have to bring along. Because some people are outstanding storytellers, but they're often being told by their representative, they like, can you inject some humor in there? Because that's where you get to break open some of that space. I always refer to humor as being a sugar pill that allows them to take the medicine. Ooh, I like that. The sugar pill. You bring them the humor and they open wide and then you put it in. And if it's particularly funny and if it's on subject, when they repeat it, they take the lesson with it. If you tell a joke that's a sidebar joke and then you try to lay on the messaging, they'll remember the joke and not the message. So the real art is write your joke on story, write it high impact. So they tell the joke and they pass on the message where the poison mushrooms are. (laughs) Exactly. I heard listening to the show, I heard people discussing something about their process of how they write. And I write about 90% of my content moving around. And that is driving that car that Leno helped me get up and down from LA to the Bay Area, 300 miles up, 300 miles back, five hours up. I'm by myself and I speak into my recorder and then I transcribe that and then punch it up, polish it uh, later, drop it onto some index cards like you would uh, a movie like, or like they do in the room, in the writer's room, where you have cards up and stuff like that. But I can't write in the same space. I can actually wake up in the morning, think about what I'm going to work on, and then I go to a different WeWork office everywhere. Sometimes I'll drive 100 miles, 200 miles, 50 miles, 16, and that's how I get it done. 
go in there, I have to go to a different space. Sometimes I, it gets hot. I've got a hot spot of writing in San Francisco for like 10 days straight, but it eventually fades and I got to go somewhere else. Do you write at a certain spot? Well, I have a couple of different methods. You seem to me, and this is really interesting the way you describe it, because I did think about, are you a seat of the pantser or are you an outliner? And I think what you've just told me is that you're a treasure hunter. Wow. Wow. You just told me something. I listened to you and I think, okay, he knows there's a story out there. When you take the drive, you're putting yourself in the place where you're inviting the muse into the car. Nobody else is around. You're not being disturbed. You don't necessarily know what, what's happening, but then you begin to think it through. And when you find a location where the light bulb is hot, you sit down, you start to write, and you're in a little bit more of probably what I would call a story fog, right? You're writing that you probably don't know how much time has passed. And then if you're hungry, you're not hungry. And then at the point that it goes away, it goes cold. Right. Ice cold. Right? <laughs> it's like, what happened? Did I turn my back? I thought it just went to the bathroom when it was coming back. Nope. It's gone. Now three days, you know, where is that thing, right? And then you get in the car and you go looking for it. You know, the answer is that it's with you and it's inside you. But in terms of that lantern going on and off, it might have to do with other life responsibilities, something your kids need. It's ethereal. I have a couple of different ways of going about it. I would say of late, my most productive writing times are in the morning out of a just, I wake up groggy and I can't, I don't fight. I just slog through as it comes out. No coffee, nothing. Just barely even not, the covers are just tipped down and I grab the laptop. And the thing about it, about writing that for me, and it's not like I'm taking my dreams and putting them on paper. It's that I'm out of my own way. I just begin to think, okay, what's on my mind at the moment? And I start to write that. And sometimes I overwrite a story or a thought or an emotion or a fear. I figure if I get enough on here, as you said, it's an editing process. But it gets exciting when during that writing, something comes clear. When I realize, oh, wait, this is really a story about my dad. I didn't really realize I was writing about my kids, but I guess I was writing to get to the kind of dad that my dad was to me. Now I can polish this up, right? Remember that it was a really dumb kid's toy called the rock polisher or rock tumbler or something. And you threw gravel in and you plugged it in the wall and then it tumbled for hours and hours. And then eventually it was a shiny rock that you could make it put on a bracelet or something. <laughs> Couldn't even constitute calling it a toy. But it's that kind of a thing where I sometimes just have to let this stuff tumble around until it starts to show a little bit of a shine. And then I pick the good ones out and I just, the rest of them, I don't care. But it's mostly that people don't want to go through the process of creating the gravel to make it happen. They don't want to put the extra words. You know, people sit down and they think they're going to write a perfect thing and then they're done. And it's just, okay, I wrote it. So it's great. And I go back all the time. I'm constantly polishing and picking through the stones. And when I find them, I don't labor over a Facebook post or something, right? But that is why I'm so prolific about it, is that I don't judge myself there. But surprisingly, the ones where a hundred people hit like or go, oh my gosh, that's such an aha. I go, oh, I was sound asleep during that. I missed that moment. <laughs> but I think that that's the truth waking up before I do. 
Now, I, I want to take you back. You had a background in intercollegiate speech and debate competitions. So you must have had structural sense. Was that prior to being a stand-up comic? Absolutely. Definitely prior to. I got involved in intercollegiate speech and debate in junior college. And you have to do informative speaking, give a speech on uh, cooking or baseball, whatever, whatever kind of speech you had to give. Something that informative ones that persuasive speeches where you're trying to woo the audience to think best about uh, policy or things like that. But then there was an event called Speech to Entertain. And it was essentially structured stand-up comedy with a thesis statement, three main points, and the closing argument. I unfortunately, after I won some tournaments, tried to do that exact speech at the Punchline in San Francisco and died the death of a million men. (laughs) Today, I'm going to talk to you about my main point will be, and it was funny in that setting, but you can't give a thesis statement. Three main points I'll be covering tonight. You're like, no, brother, this is, we're not going to give it to you. So that was bad. But when I went to the tournaments, I was winning all the time, like a lot, 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 lot. Ended up getting recruited to UCLA and won the national championship against every major college in in the funny event. But it all came from all those speeches I had to give knocking on doors as a Tehovah Sidness. And I didn't know that's why I was good at it until much later. Oh, I, that's an interesting aha. Right. So as torturous as the thing was, you were getting practical practice of being there and staying in that moment and accomplishing that speech or trying to make that sale or collect that money. So it was, a, it was agenda driven. A bad night of stand up was never as bad as someone saying, get off my porch. I don't want to hear about your religion. And in one case, a guy went and got a shotgun while two people were standing on the stairs. Nobody's going to get a shotgun at the punchline and say, get off the stage. But coming from that one-on-one thing, when there's like four people in the audience, that never bothered me. It makes complete sense to me, which is you had experienced torture of another lot. I think Jerry Seinfeld refers to Find a torture that you can stand, right? Just as much as you can stand of that torture, and then you'll be fine for life. I actually talked to Jerry at the punchline in San Francisco in 79. And this is when I, I wasn't going up yet. I was just doing my speeches on the college circuit. Uh, not, not college circuit, but in the college competition against other universities. And um, he said, write your own stuff and stay clean. And you could take it. It was just a moment I talked to him before he, I think it was before he was about to go on, which is a bad time. I didn't know that you don't approach comedians before they go on stage. But I walked in, that's what he said to me in a little tight little bucket of thought. And, and it helped me a lot. It got me to making a living and buying a home and stuff, working that way. And then I found the next level of truth was to tell my life. Well, I am so grateful that you have shared this info with us today. I want to get to know so much more about you. I would love to come see one of your one-man shows. If there's one playing soon, I hope you will let me know about it. I'm going to hope that our listener takes the time to go Google your name, to look at your Snap Judgment winning stories, many that we talked about today. On Instagram and Twitter, they can find you at Don Reed Wow. And also, would you restate the name of the Diversity Project? The diversityzone.com. 
Okay, cool. I hope that that takes off for you because I think there's no better time for all of us to learn something from each other's stories than that. And uh, the marsh, themarsh.org, like a marsh. You can find all my shows. I'm usually starting them there. And I'm doing a show called Going Out. And it's about being trapped during COVID and being only able to rewind all the times I did go out, go out dancing, go to a baseball game and the comedic disasters and the uplifting heart that I found through that process. That's fantastic. And it, what I love about it, it's relevant. The audience can experience going out and seeing you thinking about having gone out. <laughs> there you go. I like that. <laughs> well, Ira Glass said great stories happen to those who can tell the story. Wow. And you have lived some amazing stories. And I am grateful that you shared a few of them today. And I know that the story is just barely begun to be told. So Don Reed, thank you for being our guest today. Okay. Thank you so very much, brother. And I look forward to seeing you. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.